What's up, guys? Welcome to Black Flag Productions. We are your hosts, Anthony and Aaron. And today we have a part two to the Proof of God series. We had a couple TikToks go viral about the previous episode, and we are just super excited to bring you more proof of God. One of the first things we want to talk about in this episode today is proof that Moses parted the Red Sea. In Exodus chapter 14, verse 16, it says this, but lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And in Exodus chapter 14, verse 21, it says this, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. A group of researchers found artifacts that littered the bottom of the Red Sea off the coast of Nueva Beach. Researchers found chariot wheels, gilded chariot wheels, horse remains, and human bones. Exodus 14 verses 6 through 8 says, And he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt and captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with an high hand. And then that continues into verses 24 and 25 later in the chapter. And it reads, And if it came to pass that in the morning watched the Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and of the cloud and troubled the host of the Egyptians and took off their chariot wheels, that'll be important later, that they drave them heavily so that the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel for the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. So you were going to talk about some of the findings that were made right here in this region. Yeah, these researchers that were looking at this particular area off the Nueva Beach in the Red Sea, they found chariot wheels that were completely covered in coral and almost unrecognizable, but they also found gilded chariot wheels. The significance in that is that coral cannot grow on gold. So there's these chariot wheels on the bottom of the Red Sea, and it's as if they were just built. There's still gold. There's no coral on them. Another significant thing about these wheels was that the construction of these wheels found at the bottom of the Red Sea matched the construction that was used during the time of Exodus. They found four and six spoke wheels, and four and six spoke wheels were only utilized during the 18th Egyptian dynasty, which would be around 1400 BC, which is in line with the time frame of Exodus. In addition to finding chariot wheels on the bottom of the Red Sea, they also found horse remains, they found horse hooves, human bones. In particular, they found a coral-covered femur bone, which was tested and confirmed to be a human femur bone. And another thing to note about them finding horse remains on the bottom of the sea is that there are no horses in the immediate area area of the Nueva Beach or by the Red Sea. There was actually topographical evidence that was discovered to show the, that the Israelites had crossed the sea after the split. At the deepest part of the Gulf, of the Red Sea where they would have crossed. It is about 5,500 feet deep. And this was used for a long time as an argument to contradict that the Israelites couldn't cross the Red Sea to the other side because even if there were no water there, there's no possible way they would have gone down 5,500 feet and back up, especially the way the topography of the ocean floor there is. But after researching the topography along the Nueva Beach, researchers found a land bridge that rises several thousand feet 
feet that connects both sides of the Nueva Beach to Saudi Arabia. And another point that was utilized to contradict that, oh, even if there were a land bridge and there were no water, the Israelites couldn't have crossed there because the mud would have been so deep that as soon as you would have stepped on it, they would have just sank in the mud and there's no possible way they could have gone that far across the sea. It was actually discovered this land bridge is completely covered in a thick layer of sand. And this is completely unlike any other part of the ocean floor around the Red Sea and especially around the Nueva Beach area. All the other parts of the seabed in that area are mud. There's not sand. But it just so happens that on this land bridge that rises thousands of feet has a thick layer of sand that would make it very easy to walk across if there were no water. It's it's really cool, man, because when you think about it, you can always invoke some supernatural miracle for something like this. I mean, the pillar of fire and smoke was what was leading them anyways, but the Egyptians still pursued. So I just really love the way that God leaves us enough breadcrumbs that we can piece this together and that uh, we kind of piece together our reason along with our faith to take us that last inch. But, you know, God could have done it over the mud, but it's interesting how he actually did it in a certain area to where we can reason our way through that. And we can almost put ourselves in the situation of uh, the escapees from Egypt that were crossing over. We're going to stick in Exodus 14, 28 and 29 says, and the waters returned and covered the chariots. These are the Egyptians pursuing and the horsemen and all of the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. There remained not so much as one of them. So the whole army got wiped out. And then the passage ends by saying, but the children of Israel walked upon dry land in the midst of the sea and the waters were a wall unto them on their left hand and on their right. Kind of piggybacking off our last video where we talked a lot about the great flood in Noah's Ark is geological proof that the earth was flooded. I was watching the Joe Rogan podcast, which I'm certainly not an endorser of, but I happened to be watching a particular episode in my research in this whole geology. And he had a couple of geologists on there and they went through all this different material, all these different geological facts that prove that the earth was flooded. And I just wanted to highlight a few of those points I don't know if you've ever been to a beach and after a wave crashes down on the sand and recedes, you get this ripple effect on the sand. Even after hurricanes, typical floods with around two feet of water will create about a fourth inch high ripple effect in the sand. And it'll be around one to three inches in wavelength. And if you look at bird's eye views of landscapes literally across the world, you will find the same ripple effect just on a very massive scale. And these ripples can be seen anywhere between 100 and 300 feet in wavelength and up to 50 feet high. And geologists estimate that in order to get a wavelength in a height of that magnitude, you would have to have a wall of water at least 1,000 feet high. That makes a lot of sense, actually. It reminds me of a verse in uh, Genesis. It's chapter 7, verse 20. It talks about how high the highest peak at that point in time was covered by water. Here's what's fascinating about that. We don't have any idea what the earth looked like before the flood. Since we know there was a lot of uh, tectonic activity, uh, God talks about waters breaking forth from not just above, but also below. And so here's what that, that verse says. It says, 15 cubits upward did the waters prevail and the mountains were covered. The two really important things I just wanted to bring up on this is, A, it completely dismisses the idea or claim of a local flood. Uh, this was a worldwide event, and the Bible even says that matter-of-factly. If it was a local flood, by the way, God wouldn't have had Noah build an ark. He would have just said, you know, take <laughs> your family and, and hike three days to the left. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing is that, uh, we, you know, we don't know if 
it was Mount Everest or the Himalayan mountain range, whatever it was at that point in time, the highest elevation on earth was completely covered plus over 30 feet of water. So that thousand foot water wall you were talking about, that makes a lot of sense. And why today, a lot of the topography and the, uh, all of the shapes of the hills and, and mounds and mountains that we see from overhead, it was all formed during the flood. Another geological feature that gives light and evidence to the fact that there was massive amounts of water that covered the earth was Dry Falls Cataract in Washington. In this waterfall, you can see a massive horseshoe effect. And it's actually the same horseshoe effect that you get that you can see at Niagara Falls. And the reasons waterfalls get this horseshoe effect is because when water goes over the sides of the waterfall, it flows fastest in the middle. So it will erode the middle of the waterfall before the outside. So it'll draw the edge of it back like a horseshoe. Although Niagara Falls is huge, Dry Falls Cataract is a lot bigger. It's about five miles wide and it has the exact same effect as Niagara Falls. It has this horseshoe effect where it erodes in the middle and that can only happen on a scale that large if massive amounts of water were flowing through that area, giving light to the fact that there must have been at one point in time a worldwide flood and unimaginable amounts of water flowing through that area. Yeah, that's interesting, man. I've, I've never heard of that. Five miles wide is a lot bigger than Niagara. Speaking of a lot of water flowing through an area, that really reminds me of something we're all familiar with, which is the Grand Canyon. And it's so fascinating how two differing starting points or worldviews can influence someone's conclusions. Scientists in the mainstream narrative will say the Grand Canyon was formed over millions of years by slow erosion by a small amount of water. Um, biblical creationists can look at that same exact thing. The evidence is the same. That's unchanged. But we would definitely say, like we talked about earlier, that that was just a lot of water in a short amount of time. And we know that water has a very destructive force that it can carve out all of those shapes and formations. As a matter of fact, Grand Canyon is, is a really cool example because so many of the rock formations are used in what's called the geologic column. And scientists try to use that in order to date the ages of the rocks. You know, the rocks on the bottom would be the oldest and then not so quite old. And then the dirt is must have just been, you know, born or something. It's interesting because there are so many examples, which you'll never find in a textbook, although they do exist, where trees are growing vertically through so-called hundreds of millions of years of geologic deposits. And so that obviously just completely dismantles and debunks the claims that each one of those rock layers represents an X amount of time. And I'm reminded by a really famous quote by Ken Ham. He always makes this phrase that if there was a worldwide flood, what would you actually expect to find if you were a forensic scientist? And he says, billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. And guess what you find? The same exact thing. Just like in the mountains of Ararat, how you mentioned in our first episode, where there's mollusks and other sea-dwelling creatures that since the Miocene age, according to scientists, ended 23 million years ago, there was no water. Well, I have a question. What a boat get on top of the mountain? <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, the whole thing just comes back and it all explodes because they're all logical fallacies. But that was really interesting about a five mile wide uh, waterfall. You know, Anthony, here's a little nugget for you to consider as just an amazing proof of God. But the Colorado River, 
which is completely accredited with carving out the formation of the Grand Canyon, that origin point of the Colorado River actually starts well below the top of the Grand Canyon. So it is a physical impossibility defying any known laws of physics for that river to have carved out the Grand Canyon. Another geological proof, a, another proof of God I wanted to talk about is giant rocks that you can find in random places literally all over the world. Giant rocks can be found above ground with a completely different makeup than the rock in the surrounding area, which suggests that the boulders did not come from the ground that they sit upon. This would indicate that they were carried there by massive-sized floods. There was a geologist on one of the Joe Rogan podcasts, and he actually showed a boulder that was in a particular area that was originated to be 200 miles away from its current location. If you analyze composition of these boulders and then analyze the composition of the rocks surrounding area of the ground that they sit upon, they do not match up. This can only point to the fact that there is massive amounts of water flowing through the area that would have carried it to its current position. Also in Washington, there's a place called Boulder Park. I don't know how many exactly rocks there are, but there is just a bunch of random boulders on top of the ground scattered everywhere in random locations. And these boulders don't match the composition of the surrounding rock in that particular area, indicating that they would have had to been moved there from a different location. Yeah, that's kind of all the proofs from a geological standpoint that I wanted to share at the moment. But I wanted to move into one of the greatest discoveries in proving the existence of God. We are going to talk about the Shroud of Turin. The Shroud of Turin is a rectangular linen cloth comprised of flax measuring 14.6 feet long and three and a half feet wide. It bears a faint yellowed image of a bearded crucified man with blood stains that match the wounds suffered by Jesus Christ. The shroud's most distinctive characteristic triggers the most frequently asked and still unanswered overarching question. What caused a front-to-back linear mirror image of an adult male to be formed on a linen burial cloth? The fact that science has yet to produce a definitive answer explains why the Shroud of Turin is the most studied, analyzed, revered, and controversial artifact in the world. That unfortunately many Christians aren't even aware of. Right, and that's this is another thing that unless you go out and intentionally search, you might not ever hear of this. And this is one of the greatest Bible-proving facts and evidences ever to come into existence. And just like anything, we're going to go right to what the Bible says about this and then jump in to what science has uncovered about this. Let's get right into it. So John 19 verse 40 says, Then they took the body of Jesus and wound it in linen cloths with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Followed up by John 20 verse 6 to 7, it reads, Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie and the napkin that was about his head not lying with the linen clothes wrapped together in a place by itself. This always strikes me as so funny because Jesus Christ just conquered death. He's getting ready to throw that stone out of the way. <laughs> and he says, wait a second, I got to fold these clothes. My mom raised me better than that. 
the the Bible actually uses the the very few scripture verses that have been preserved for all eternity, and it actually tells us that Jesus folded his laundry. So I just I always find that funny. <laughs> yeah, and all jokes aside, just the symbology of that folded napkin is so significant because it was actually a Jewish custom at the time that when you were finished eating at the table, you were to fold your napkin, signifying to everybody that you were finished, and then you were to leave the table. Well, the fact that Jesus Christ resurrected and then folded the napkin was basically him telling the world, hey, it's finished. I conquered death. These verses talk about the shroud and they also talk about the handkerchief that was on his head. And both of these things were actually discovered. The handkerchief that was on his head was actually discovered and it is known as the Sidarium of Oviedo. Scientific studies of this handkerchief compared to the shroud have determined that it is a perfect forensic match and the handkerchief matches the face wounds that you can find on the shroud of the Turin. So just to kind of go through these bullets and give you a history of the shroud of Turin, the cloth's faint yellow image of a man as seen with the naked eye is actually a negative image that when developed turns into a detailed black and white positive. That type of image still has never been able to be replicated. There's a scientific photographers have never been able to take a negative image and develop it into a black and white positive. The image is superficial and it actually does not penetrate the cloth. The image of the man rests on the top two microfibers. This would be equivalent to the image resting on the hairs of your arm. Obviously, like I said earlier, the image is a photographic negative that develops as a positive. The image contains 3D distance information similar to topographical maps. There is no directionality to the image as found with a brush or any substance application tool. So, so it couldn't have been faked. Right. Something that is really worth noting here is a lot of people have devoted their careers, portions of their expertise, and they have done it with a specific intent to debunk the Shroud of Turin. And I think that that's something that we should pause on for just a moment because these weren't necessarily, you know, uh, someone from a, a far corner of the Vatican or or from the Christian church that were just going there already with a presupposition in their head of, well, it's real. Now let me find facts to fit my narrative. That's not the case whatsoever. And still, after all of the the very sensitive equipment, the procedures that have been followed, and all of the uh, the studies that they've done under microscope on this, it has yet to be debunked. And you've got even more research to share on that. Yeah, in addition to that, the yellowing of the image is uniform in intensity. There is no outline or defined edges to the image. The Shroud of Torin research group, better known as STERP, made this conclusion about the Shroud of Torin. They said this, there are no chemical or physical methods known which can account for the totality of the image, nor can any combination of physical, chemical, biological, or medical circumstances explain the image adequately. So in 1973, a Swiss criminologist was given permission to take dust samples from the shroud that contained numerous pollen spores. He discovered 22 pollen species from plants that can only be found in areas around the Constantinople and Edessa, where the Shroud of Turin was thought to have traveled after leaving Jerusalem. In addition, he found seven pollen species from plants common only to Israel. The pollen trail appears to corroborate the historic trail. In 2004, textile experts revealed that the stitching of the seam on the shroud that runs the entire length 
known as the side strip, is typical of Jewish burial shrouds found in ancient fortress of Masada in southern Israel. It was verified the shroud was one of the same style of textiles used in first century Israel. In 2011, European researchers replicated the depth and coloration of the shroud image using a 40 nanosecond burst from a UV excimer laser. They found that the Shroud of Turin is not a fate and the body image was formed by a sort of electromagnetic source of energy. Atomic resolution studies on the Shroud of Turin says that the cloth contains nanoparticles usually not found in the blood of someone healthy. The blood contained high levels of creatinine and ferritin, substances found in patients who have suffered from devastating traumas like torture. Researchers pointed out that there are round coin-like objects placed over the corner of the eyes of the man in the shroud. The coin upon the left eye is clearly visible, and when the image of the shroud is enlarged, the image reveals that one of the coins is in fact what is known as a Pontius Pilate leptin, which was only minted for a very short time. So this finding blew my mind. Uh, I, I was actually unfamiliar with it, and I've watched several documentaries on this, but here's something that's really interesting about that. Matthew 27 verse 26 says, then released he, and this is talking about the governor, Pontius Pilate, then released he, Barabbas, unto them. So basically he's releasing or granting clemency and pardoning Barabbas to this throng of, of angry Jews who are calling for the death of Jesus. So the verse finishes up here by saying, and when he had scourged Jesus, this is Pontius Pilate, he delivered him to be crucified. So he, they didn't just deliver him to be crucified, but they, they had such a bloodlust that they wanted him to be tortured first. So it's very interesting that the presiding governor that uh, finalized the death sentence on Jesus Christ was the same one that they found the insignia of on these coins, which would have been the local currency where Jesus was actually crucified. And those coins would have only been minted when Pontius Pilate was king. Right. Yeah, because when there's a, a transfer of power between governorships, it's almost like that currency is no longer good. So th this would have had to have happened in a very specific time frame. And guess what? That's the evidence we find. The Shroud of Turin research group also concluded all of the following. The blood stains on the head are compatible with a crown of thorns. And John chapter 19 verse 2 says this. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, set it on his head, and dressed him in a purple robe. Sturp also concluded that there were over 120 scourge marks compatible with a Roman flag. Hey, this is interesting, but in Matthew 27, 26, uh, that we just read earlier, it talks about the scourging that Pontius Pilate does. So I looked this up and this was also known as a cat of nine tails. What it was, was the Roman soldiers or whoever was in charge of punishing prisoners, basically sentenced to death, they would take a leather strap, which was a whip, and then they would separate the leather strap into nine very fine straps at the end. They would attach bone shards or some other very sharp weapon on the very end so that not only were you being whipped, but it would also peel back your flesh and pierce into the sinew of your muscle, causing excruciating pain because it would damage the nerve endings. So, I mean, this is absolutely horrific. The fact that he's going to be tortured and then Jesus then on top of that has to carry his cross up to where he's literally going to be put to death. So not a good way to go. The image of the man also shows that the legs are pulled up. This is a condition called rigor mortis and it is a stiffness of muscles that sets in quickly after death and lasts less than four days. So the fact that we have pulled up legs indicates the person put in this cloth recently 
had died. The shroud showed no signs of body decomposition. And this is significant because the resurrection happened on the third day before decomposition had time to occur. The shroud shows that the man that was in the shroud had a wound in the side compatible with the size of a Roman spear tip. Yeah, and this is extremely significant because in John chapter 19, verse 34, it says this, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. Yeah, and kind of piggybacking off that last point and the significance of why the man of the shroud was stabbed was this, that the legs of the man in the shroud were not broken. And in John chapter 19, verse 31 through 33 says this, the Jews therefore, because it was the preparation that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him because there was two other people crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. So the fact that the man of the shroud has a wound in his side compatible with a Roman spear tip and his legs were not broken, which was requested by the Jews, extremely significant because here we have multiple verses that the man of the shroud lines up with. When you were talking about uh, John 19 verses 31, 32, and 33, it really just reminded me of something that is so easy to skip over as we read those passages but the one guy was uh, a thief and then he rejected God and then on the other side uh, where it it mentions he was crucified with Jesus almost as though he shared in his suffering that was the one that Jesus also gave the free gift of salvation to and he promised him that they would be in paradise together that very same day and so I just always love to take a moment and hit the pause button real quick when it comes to salvation like that because there was obviously still hope for that sinner on the cross even though he was being put to death for his crimes and right before he tasted death and he gave up the ghost he actually received jesus christ as his savior so uh, i mean that is such a powerful moment that is also just as easy to read over and something else extremely significant that i wanted to mention about the shroud of torin is this the shroud of torin research team they concluded that the man that was depicted in the shroud was scourged and crucified and except for jesus there is no man in recorded roman history who was severely scourged and crucified and normally it was one punishment or the other never in history was it recorded that somebody were to be scourged and crucified researchers have proven that the man of the shroud endured both in addition it was not common practice to pierce the side of victims of crucifixion nor was it common practice to place a crown of thorns upon a victim of crucifixion or scourging yet all of these things have been proven to be true for the man of the shroud and furthermore, all of these things were recorded to have, have happened to Jesus. Just to put it in perspective, this is a piece of cloth at the end of the day that has survived thousands of years and is still existing today. I haven't heard of too many pieces of cloth that have gone through that many changes of ownership and is still that intact. Well, guys, that's going to wrap it up. All of these things, like Anthony just mentioned, we're just scratching the surface. If you want to go a little bit deeper, please do. Because researching the things of God will never return to you unfruitful. In the meantime, if you have any suggestions on other things that we can do a deep dive on, conduct some research, and maybe do a part three, please let us know in the comments, whether you're on TikTok, Instagram, or YouTube. Make sure to hit the like button if you found some value in what we've been putting together for you. But until next time, we'll wrap it up there. On behalf of Anthony and of course myself, thank you so much for tuning in. You can expect a whole lot more of this in the future. We're out of here for Black Flag Productions.